Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture whether you like it or not. Western Europeans have always been bent on expansion, even before the great explorations of the Spanish and the Portuguese. But before the discovery of the Americas, where did Western Europeans expand? Eastward, of course. Between the 900s and the 1400s, West Europeans, especially Germans and Dutch, left their overcrowded homelands in West Germany and the Low Countries and pushed east. By conquest, settlement, and sometimes invitation, they took land and built cities in today's eastern Germany, Poland, Hungary, the Baltic states, Romania, and in some cases, even farther afield. Today we're going to focus on one aspect of this enormous historical phenomenon, that is the German settlement of Romania. So all of this uh, is part of the bigger historical phenomenon that is called in German the Drangnach Austin. And we don't have a word for it in English, unfortunately. So uh, we'll just have to call it the Drangnach Austin, which means the push to the east or the urge to the east. And lately in German historiography, they've liked to start calling it things like the settlement of the east because they're trying to be politically correct. And then that's fallen out of favor. Now they call it the, the colonization of the east, which in a way is like the most accurate term, I think. Mm. But uh, so I'm here today with Jazz Hands McFeels, first time on the show. Uh, glad to have you. Well, sir, thank you for having me. So you've been to the area of Romania where German settlement was a big phenomenon throughout the Middle Ages and even into the 20th century. Yes, extensively, multiple times. So what, I mean, are there still, did you encounter any Germans in that area when you were there? There are some still. Um, it's, their population is down to about 60,000 in total. Um, it used to be uh, 600,000, although they have a difficult time estimating how many there really were at peak, which would have been in the 1930s. Um, but as recently as 2014, the prime minister of Romania, Klaus Johannes, was a full-blooded Transylvania Saxon. Um, so sometimes you'll have politicians who come from Hungarian ethnic backgrounds or German ethnic backgrounds to try to have some solidarity um, in the region with Romanians. Yeah, and what I, I find you know most interesting about this whole topic, and I, I want to we're going to do more podcasts on the the Austin is it's almost like a, a mirror image of the American expansion into the West, but it's in the Middle Ages. Yes. So it's like this cool expansion of Western people into the less, relatively less populated areas of, of Eastern Europe, um, cutting down trees, building farms, building cities, developing the whole area. And I don't want to say that the locals were kind of like the Indians in that role, but there was sort of a relationship of... of uh, of uh, German Catholic originally, later uh, Protestant groups with the locals that was sometimes good, sometimes bad, and, and we'll get into that. But the you don't really know about this in America because one, it's not really taught, and two, you just look at America, you look at European history as a whole, and you kind of see Europe as being from England or Ireland mm. to the Urals. And so any internal stuff doesn't really strike you as being a frontier. But in the Middle Ages, this would have been seen as a frontier. Mm -hmm. it, yes, it was. And I think, you know, we're because we aren't taught a lot about that history and Europeans, they sort of laugh at us and correctly so. 
uh, that were kind of ignorant of that history because they they seem to be have some understanding of our own history, um, but they're shocked when you don't have a really kind of any understanding of, of theirs other than from a very basic level. Um, and there's when you start, it's one of my favorite aspects of history to kind of dive into because it's relatively unknown. It's kind of exciting. You can draw a lot of parallels to it and the American West. When you were uh, talking to me about this deep dive and I saw that you had drawn that comparison, it, it was a thought that really hadn't even occurred to me to compare the two. But when you start thinking about these areas as being kind of uninhabited, you know, the term colonization, um, you know, there was no there was no civilization that fell in these places in order for uh, the Germans to come in, um, which is contrary to what you're expected to believe, right, in a lot of ways. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that more a little bit. But, yeah, it's, it's really kind of an interesting concept to think about. Like, where is, you know, in the 18th century in America, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania was kind of the frontier, yeah, you, you didn't go past that. The French controlled Duquesne and whatnot. It's like where was the line in different centuries throughout Europe? Where was the where was the frontier? Where was the edge of civilization? And it's sort of the same thing too with Russia just pushing into Siberia. Mm -hmm. um, from in about seventy years or so, they went from the Urals to the Pacific. Uh, astounding, like three times as far as from like Pittsburgh to San Francisco, I think roughly. Oh yeah, it's with huge. Probably more mountain ranges and and you know you're not just fighting uh, engines with well you know very very uh, tough and uh, aggressive people. Yeah. But you know you're fighting Mongols mm -hmm. with uh, you know horse archers and, and fairly developed peoples. And arguably dealing with more exotic wildlife too. I mean. You had grizzly bears in the West and some mountain lions and whatever, but you had like Siberian tigers and some pretty pretty intense things. And just to put it into perspective, um, I think the what are they, I don't remember what they call the train that goes from Moscow to to the, the Trans Siberian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's like a ten day train ride, and that's going pretty fast. And it's what isn't it like seven thousand miles or something something immense? I, I was on it for a night from Novosibirsk to Tomsk. Oh wow. Which I well, I don't know if that's technically part of it, but whatever. It was and it was uh, it was really weird, really trippy. Uh, just drunk Russians being drunk, and <laughs> it really gives you perspective um, when you see not just I mean the, the the sheer magnitude. People get perspective when they drive across the United States, and they're like, "Oh wow, I didn't really realize it was that big." Until you go to a place like that and realize there's so much space and like the fact that these people conquered it in what 70 years yeah. it's pretty incredible on horseback and not much else yeah but back to the the drying knock austin so this is starting i mean the the sort of frontier of western civilization if you think back to like charlemagne's time was probably the the, the elbe river mm -hmm. because charlemagne and this is a little bit before uh the proper drying knock Austin, but Charlemagne had to uh, Christianize and convert the Saxons <laughs> yeah. who were Germans. Yeah. And then from there, like, it, and you think of the Elbe river, that's like central Germany. And yeah. then everything East of there was Slavic, mm -hmm. Slavic speaking and, uh, farther East Baltic speaking. And then, uh, different, you know, like, uh, Romanian speakers, you know, proto-Romanian, I guess, yeah. Dacians in, in the Balkans and all over the place. So, uh, if you think about like the the overall picture of the Dry Knock Austin from, say, the time of like Barbarossa, Henry the Lion, the, the mid 1100s, 
to the 20th century. It's about 800 year period. And then you look at where it went, it sort of flowed in two directions, flowed around the, the Baltic coast up into the Baltic states with the Teutonic Knights and stuff like that. And then it flowed south, like through Austria into the Balkans, uh, into the, the area of Transylvania, and then all, forming that bulwark against Turkic expansion from the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had right in the middle the Bohemians, a staunchly Slavic people who held out right there in, in, between the, the mountains there. Yeah, they didn't stay very long when they stopped in Silesia and Bohemia. They kind of, it was a transit point. You can trace some linguistic remnants there, but they kind of just moved on. Um, I remember reading, being fascinated about this piece of history, if you'll allow me just one very quick tangent, no, please. Um, about the northern expansion, about um, how they had to f- f- fjord their boats a very great distance into Russia to get to, um, I don't know if it would be the Volga River, um, but very long distance to be able to get down into, eventually they sailed into uh, the Bosphorus and yeah, the Varangian Guard. Right, it would be down, down the, the Dnieper. Yes, there you go. Yeah. yeah. And the, just, but they, they, they took their, and they evolved. So since we're not all now experts in Ukrainian geography, thanks to this <laughs> stupid war. <laughs> yes, exactly. I've no, I know towns in Ukraine now that, that just, never I, don't, I don't want to know. I yeah. never should have known. <laughs> well, it's just, and they evolved their shipbuilding techniques so that they could carry them longer distances than they were originally intended because they wanted to set up trading. Um, and we're only learning about the extent of this recently because of archaeological discoveries showing coins um, that were kind of all along these pathways. It's like, how did they get there? They knew they were Varangian Guard, but how did they get from A to B? There were kind of theories in how it happened, um, but they're finding out now that their trade networks and kind of incursion into that area was far more extensive than it was in the past. But, but zooming in on Romania now, so can you just give us a, a general overview of Romania? Because... Sure. Uh, it, it, it's a tra- it's been a transit point, um, you know, transit point for the Crusades, transit point for civilizations long before that. Um, there's a city in uh, Romania that kind of says it all. Uh, the name of the city is Constanza today, uh, but it used to be called in the center of Constanza. It's on the Black Sea, and it's geographically maybe a four or five hour drive from Odessa and directly across from Sevastopol. So you can kind of get an idea in your mind of where this is. And in the center of uh, Constanza is an old city called Tomis. And Tomis gets its name from the Greeks, uh, who colonized that area first. Um, and then after the Greeks, it was the Romans. And the Romans then expanded, and we'll talk about this history, but this huge network um, for salt mining, because that's what Romania had in its abundance. Um, Something that we love. Yes. <laughs> mining, they came there to mine the salt. Um, and the people there, you know, the Dachshund, the native people, the Dachshunds, it's constantly this kind of, if you think of like a tidal lagoon or a tidal pool, there's constantly like water flowing in and water flowing out and kind of the dynamics and the biology of that tidal pool kind of changing. Um, but the Romans built extensive networks of roads. Uh, there's a um, some Roman ruins in a place called Isteria on the Black Sea that's just north of where Tomis was, um, although the Romans had Tomis as well, uh, where more extensive Roman ruins than I've seen anywhere in Italy. Uh, it, you know, if you're in Rome and you go see the original Senate and some of the things in the center of Rome, very beautiful. But if you walk around Isteria, because this stuff hasn't been kind of westernized, it's still kind of left as it is, 
I mean, you're walking around in almost an entire city. Yeah. Um, that is, is like Pompeii or something. Yes. As big and as impressive and, and a lot of it untouched because those people kind of grew up among the ruins, but they just didn't know about them, didn't do anything with them. They've only been kind of um, delved into recently. Um, but to, to you know, the Romans were only there for, by my calculations, what, 160 years? Yeah, right. And the from, Greeks... From Trajan to Aurelian. And, and for the Greeks, this was kind of a far-flung expansion, and so they didn't stay for very long. And it always kind of, like, these, these this place was very remote for major civilizations to kind of hold on to for any length of time. So they always kind of, because it was a transit point, it always kind of fell back into... Disarray, barbarism. Well, Transylvania is just the sort of uh, West Virginia of Europe. Yes, I say that about a lot of places. I usually say it about Switzerland, but it but looks like West Virginia. I mean, there actually, you'll find this interesting. The um, there's a series on HBO about the Hatfields and McCoys uh, about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Obviously, takes place in West Virginia, a little bit in Virginia, if you know the whole story. What most people don't know is that entire series was filmed in Transylvania. Uh-huh. Because you literally cannot tell the difference between the scenery, <laughs> I and mean, it was cheaper, and they probably didn't want to help the um, West Virginia economy, my guess, is yeah, what, right. the reason why they did it. But anyway. F- fuck West Virginia. It seems to be a consistent policy of the Jews. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the interesting thing about, like, Romania is, or one, about the geography is, it, it isn't really, I guess it wasn't really a, a country or a... a pol- it's never really been a polity until fairly recently, just because of the way it's really three regions. It's Wallachia and the south, so the area just north north of the Danube, right, is, is Wallachia. South, south, okay. Yes. And then the then the, the northern two thirds is sort of split in two by the Carpathian Mountains, which run in a sort of backwards S. Yep. And then the part to the west is Transylvania, and the part to the east is Moldo- Moldova. Yes. Greater Moldova, not just the little country today. The part that they gave up at world, in World War One or two. I think it's two. They gave up a lot. They've given up a lot of land. But Romania is very similar to. Um, I don't have a dog in the fight of of like Romanian nationalism or anything. No, please, like that. please, let's. Uh... No, um, and so it's very similar to Poland or Ukraine in that it's not. This may be offensive to some, but it's, it's, it's impossible to talk about Eastern Europe without pissing somebody off. Right. So we're we're gonna do it. It's it's not it's not a country that existed two hundred years ago, and it doesn't have any historical existence or borders. It was a um, hundred thousand Romanians f- coming to Alba Iulia and demanding independence and their own country and getting support from the West as a state to stand up and essentially depopulate Transylvania of Germans and get control over Hungary. And they, because if they didn't do this, it would become, I mean, imagine if Romania, 600,000, 600,000 Germans ruled that country for 600 years. They were the most dominant force, even if they were minority in population. And they had, that could not stand. Like they could not allow that to happen. And so Romania, its language has been distinct. And it's interesting because the Romanian language, they're considered on ancient maps, they're, they're kind of grouped by Slavs, Northern Slavs, Southern Slavs. Romanians are not actually Slavs. They're Latins. They're considered Latins. Their language is the closest to original Latin. It's like vulgar Latin. The first, the first thing any Romanian will ever tell you, and always, they're like, (laughs) you know, you know, 
we were conquered by the Romans. Yes. It's like their point of pride. <laughs> right. It's like, like number one, we were conquered by the Romans. <laughs> yes. We're Romans. I mean, they call themselves Romans. Roma, Romania was the Latin. Right. Like, not to be common with com- Roma. But, but the, <laughs> yeah, fuck them. The Gypsies. <laughs> but like the Ro- Roma, uh, Romania was just the Latin word for the Roman Empire. Right. And they're still using it to describe their own state. It's a cargo. It's it's. There's an element of cargo culting there, but they also cargo cult Dacian sort of warrior heroism as well. And there's kind of a cool step, you know, horses on the step. It's that type of people. Um, but they got they got their they got their asses beat over and over and over again. Um, and it was only with the backing of. Uh, this sort of like Jewish emancipatory like movement throughout Europe to say, hey, these Romanians never had any voting rights. They never got a say so in Transylvania. It was only the Germans that had the power in this power sharing tripartite Tate that we'll talk about later um, with between the um, I can never pronounce this name. The Sheckler, Sheckler, Skelzy or whatever. The Hungarian group. Yes. Um, and the Hungarians. The Hungarians, the Scythians, and they're like the descendants of the Scythians. But um, if, you, if you, like... So the thing about Transylvania is it sort of geographically seems like it should be part of Hungary because it's protected by the Carpathian Mountains and it historically has yes. been part of Hungary. And the Romanian speaking areas are mainly Moldova, Moldova and Wallachia. And Moldova is even more of a... a a dialect that's closer to Ukrainian um, than it is Romanian. They speak Romanian, but they've kind of moved, especially since the, because of what happened at the end of World War II, Moldova has kind of more aligned with... Well, yeah, the, and the, the Soviets, when they set that up, I know they introduced, uh, they they recodified, they did the same thing they did with Roma- uh, Ukrainian, where they codified it as a separate language. Yes. They just started writing it in Cyrillic, but it's the same language as Romanian for all intents and purposes. Right. It's just, and they don't, but they don't understand, like Romanians don't understand it because they can't read Cyrillic. They just act like, I don't know what that is. But it's like, you have the same Slavic words. In fact, you have the same word for Jew. It's Evray. Um, that's where the joke comes. Well, Evray is single time. the same word for Jew. Yeah, Evray, yeah. But, well, the Slavic word, the Slavic root word in Russia, it's Evray. In Russian. Evray, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's the, the Sez, Sezglers uh-huh. is, that, is that third Because S, S-Z in Hungarian is pronounced S, I think. Oh, it is? Oh, so, in, in, so the Seklers? Which the Seklers. Con- which is confusing there. because in, in Polish, it's Sh. Right. So I don't know why the Hungarians are special. I don't know why they're doing that. Yeah. Um, but they, the, the Secklers are actually genetically descended from Huns. Some wow. of Hungarians are too. Um, but is that, is that in genetic shit. stuff? Is yeah. that like proven? Yes. Huh? Yes. Proven that the Hungarians are not, or, or no, that, that there's some, because the, I mean, the Huns is a whole other thing, but the Huns, it's not. It's, it's, it's debated whether they were like a Turkic people or, or, or it what. Is, it is confirmed. I was, but they're not like based it's, on. It's like a mixture. It's like, like what I know is based on the linguistics. Yes, but I don't know about the genetic stuff. So a lot of the Hungarian words um, for like woman and lad and bad smell and sword, it's Iranian. Well, they're literally the same words in Iranian. Iranic, yeah. Um, and the in early Iranian, um, but. Hungarian, I think it's like a when they did a genetic study of the people who considered themselves Magyar, 
it was like a plurality of their genetic heritage were was descended from Huns. And then there was Turks and kind of a mixture kind of in between. But most of it, originally, if you go all the way back, it's the Urgic people. Yeah, right. Yeah. Fin- fin- and that is genetically yeah. confirmed because there, there was kind of a comprehensive full-spectrum study done on the DNA to sort of settle this because the Hungarians were saying, we're just all from Huns, period, end of story, because right. Hun and Hungarian. But it's not sort of. Some of you, yes. Not all of you. It depends on where where you're you're coming from but so romanian history uh so well what's weird about it is the roman province of dacia was mainly transylvania correct no it was everything to the to the black sea it started in the black sea and then it shifted um eastward westward sorry Mm -hmm. and there if you look at the old maps um there was extensive Roman settlements in the mountains, but there was also quite a bit kind of that there's, you know, how Ukraine is known as this breadbasket of Europe. Well, a lot of the land east of Transylvania and it's a couple hundred miles wide and north to south, it's a large piece of land is kind of an extension of that kind of breadbasket, kind of fertile uh, farmland. Um, it's good good for farming and good for horse archery. Yes, and that's why the, the Romans were using that to feed their armies as well to kind of kind of t- continue to advance their positions until um, they just decided it wasn't worth it. Yes, keep the border on the Danube. Right. So why... There's a big dispute in the origin of the Romanians. Uh, Romanians will tell you we were Romans and we were Latins and we were always there. There is a dispute in historical linguistics about whether the Romanians are, whether they've always been there, because there isn't any evidence of people speaking a Latin type language until the 1500s or so. Right. Uh, There's no no real records. And there have always been, for a long time, Latin speaking people in the Balkans called the Vlachs. And... One theory is that these vlachs sort of consolidated and then moved into Romania, and then that's how you have Romanian. It's actually a post-Roman medieval migration of Latin speakers into Romania and not the other way around, but or not that they've always been there. But I know the uh, Romanians will claim, will staunchly insist that, no, we, we've always been there. We've always been Latin speakers. And I, I read this, I was reading this book on Romance languages a few years ago, and it was it was saying that the Romanian language is like traceable to in certain features of its uh, phonology and, and it's traceable. It's closest to like a very early version of very Southern Italian. Yes. And so the theory on that would be, well, the wh- where, where are the Romans recruiting their troops from in the first century, second century AD? Mm-hmm. It would be, you know, Southern Italy, which was the, the Kentucky of ancient Rome where they got all their troops from. Yes. Uh, until, you know, until that just, sort of uh, became poor and downtrodden and they started ha- having to recruit from the Germanic areas. It's Well, there's also a lot of Greek influence in um, just like if you do a DNA test on someone who says they're Southern Italian, they're going to not, there's no Southern Italian DNA. It's Greek. Um, and if you yeah, do... We, we was. We was, yeah. And you do DNA tests on people in parts of Romania, you're going to get Greek... Persian, Turk, 
um, Hungarian. Uh, and if you just do kind of a casual walking around the streets in Romania, which is really because of Ceausescu, has remained a very closed sort of demographic uh, place, even because the, the Germans, when they were there, did not intermarry with Romanians. Very rarely did it happen. Um, and Romanians didn't intermarry with the other ethnic groups. They don't want to have anything to do with Arabs. They don't want to have anything to do with Hungarians. It was very... Um, Turks. Tur- Turks, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, very, uh, very trifurcated, if you will, uh, amongst these groups. And so you kind of have this in isolation, sort of these, these people. And so if you just go walking around the streets in Romania... Um, the further east you go, the more swarthy the people look. The further west you go, um, the blonder and blue-eyed types of people that you're going to get. Some of those people are German. Some of them are Romanian, and they will say, like, we're not Transylvania Saxon, and you're looking at a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, freckled Romanian. Um, And it's, it's really interesting because you see kind of like I don't. I don't want to say it's multiculturalism because it's not. It's kind of multi-European, multicultural European genetics, where you see kind of a an array of this type of, of of people. But you can tell, you can even see this in the Polish people, in a lot of places in Eastern Europe, where you can tell when you're you've inter- encountered somebody who just has a lot of Mongol DNA. You know what I'm talking about? Mm, yeah. And they look like. But then you also encounter somebody who could just be from like Norway, and that they're like, "No, I'm, I'm this country, and I've been here." And it's just like, well, it's really weird. You look like, you don't look like a Slav, but you are kind of. And it's funny, like the more you interact with these people, the the more intelligent the people are. Seemingly, the whiter they are. Um, that's probably gonna piss a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, but. It, it's more, I would say, let's rephrase that in a nicer way. The more Germanic behaving, they're less quick to anger. They're more like... Depressive. Because you, if you're a German, you're to, you and I are talking about our genetic backgrounds. Like, when you encounter somebody else who has shared genetic background with you, you find things in common with them because they have a lot of the same mannerisms that you do. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you're spending time with somebody who's a different type of European that you're not, you don't have any admixture, you find it harder to have maybe some of the same traits. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but... I, I, I feel that way with a lot of, I mean, a lot of, like, core Americans, because yeah. I'm not as, like, Germanic and... Like, the core American is usually Germanic, Irish, Anglo. Right. That's, like, his main makeup. And I'm sort of that, but not really. So I, I do feel a little bit of... Some of it, yeah. Throw. It's like I can kind of get where you're coming from, but... That's why, like, if I meet somebody who's, like, from... Who's from, like, a Greek or a Baltic background or Southern European... We, we have more in common than we have with the rest of the world. But I have more in common with somebody from Germany than I do with, like, just talking to them and sharing experiences than I do with somebody from, like, Greece or from France. Yeah. Because I have no French background. Um, yeah, whenever, the, I've been to Germany a few times very briefly, and whenever I get to Germany, I'm always like, oh, yeah, thank yes. God. I'm comfortable, I I'm comfortable here. I know yes. this, this is normal. And, and whenever I've met people from Germany and it's you know whether you're kind of on a trip and you just you're by happenstance you interact with somebody it's like funny I always end up like going out to the bar to drink beers and hitting it off with people 
from from Germany, even if we're in of another European country, it's like the Germans are the ones that are like you just hit it off with, and there's like immediate sort of. And you can do that with Italians. You can do it with other groups, and sure, we get along. Yeah, right? I mean, when I, when I when I am with Italians, I have to sort of adopt the like New Yorker, like I'm gonna fuck you over mentality. Yes. I have to really embrace yes. the the ass the inner asshole. Machiavellian. Yes. <laughs> but in like Germany in the north, you can just kind of calm down and right and, and relax. Be fine. Yes, yes, definitely. But, um, so, how did the Germans get into Transylvania? Sure. So I, I went down um, and looked into this because I want—I always want to make sure that I'm like correct and not just going with assumptions or what other people have told me, and you sort of end up creating an ethos that's not really or a mythos that's not really there. Um, and I was looking into this, and what I learned and did not realize, my, my understanding of the history was that um, there was in the 12th century there was a king who said, "We want to have people." I'm giving the very easy. Hungarian, Hungarian king. Yeah, yeah Hungarian king uh, who controlled this territory. Uh, I want to have people come and settle this land that nobody's really doing much with. It's relatively uninhabited. And it's uninhabited because there have been series of invasions. Um, the Mongols had come through in the 1200s. And um, we want somebody there because it literally is the gateway to Europe. If Hungary falls... Um, the the Habsburg Empire will fall. They get into uh, Polish uh, Lithuanian Empire. They get in, which I think didn't exist at that point. But no. that general sphere, you get you get you get into Hungary, and from Hungary you can use that as your base anywhere. Yes, like, like the Hungarians were doing in the nine early tenth uh, century. Yes, they were uh, in their base, and the Huns were doing before them. Mm -hmm. Like you have that that Hungarian plain country. And from there, if you're a horse rider or steppe people, you can just raid into Get France, anywhere. Germany, anywhere. Very quickly. So, yeah, you got to control Hungary to, like, keep the barbar barbarians out of Europe. Yes. And in, in Suleiman, um, they were very, in Mehmet, they were very interested in breaking Hungary in order to get through those lines and, and into Europe. Like, that was their goal. Um, and because Europe, Western Europeans were so concerned with control of Italy, um, the there was not a lot of appetite from Western Europe uh, in hearing the pleadings of the Hungarians and hey can you send money or at least send some men to protect the border because we're we're fucked if they break through and they're like we're dealing with Italy right now. Right, you, so. you read you read a history of Germany from the Middle Ages and it's it's tedious because it's always just. Henry the third, fourth, fifth, uh, Frederick the first, second, just always going into Italy to fight with the Italians over <laughs> crown me, don't crown me, I kiss the Pope's ring, I don't kiss his ring, right. I hold his bridle, I don't hold his bridle. And, and it's like, you're like, well, wait a second, though, I don't really care about this. Tell me about, tell me about the northern and eastern frontier, because that seems where the action's at. Right. But they weren't paying attention to it. Um, or when they were, and this is, this is true when Constantinople fell. Because they sent multiple ships uh, west to try to get money and please help us. like And the, the people there were like, sorry, we don't have anything to send you. They would eventually send Ven They would always plead with the Venetians to send something. They'd send something, something small. But there was just no kind of like, we're busy over here. We don't have time to deal with this bigger problem. Um, and so uh, the, the what I thought was the story was that... These settlers were recruited to come and essentially build uh, these fortified towns, and that was Transylvania, the end, very simple story. But it's not actually true. 
how did the king in Hungary come into contact with the Germans? How did he know that the Germans were people that he wanted to settle in that territory? How did he have their resume? How did he know what, what they were all about? And it was because of knights, um, mercenary knights, who were invited um, through the Crusades in some earlier conflicts in the 1100s, um, that these kings in Hungary got to know uh, the Germans. And in fact, trying to understand the origin of the term Siebenburger Saxon is looking into the origin of the term Saxon from their perspective. And originally, Saxon meant those mercenary knights only. It only meant this elite class of Germans who were encouraged to come and fight. Often they were given land by these Hungarian kings. And um, they were, which it was controversial in some cases because there are stories written about these knights then abandoning their homelands in Germany to come have this new territory. Um, and this is how this kind of started. And so when... Well, there, there must have been a fight, too, with the Hungarian kings and his own nobles who would oh, yes. want these foreigners coming in want and, and doing the military work for right. them. But it's kind of like, well, then help me deal with the enemy then, guy. I mean, why aren't you... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't want these guys coming in, then, you know, this is a, this is kind of a problem. Um, and so this this was all originally Saxon meant this elite group of mercenaries um, until they decided to start bringing more and more people in as settlers. And the agreement that was often written was you can come settle here. You can be released from serfdom in the West, but you must promise never to go back to where you're from. And so a lot of these people, in fact, most, if not all of them, left and never went back to Germany. They settled and kind of had this attitude of, what's the story with Hernan Cortez where he burned all his ships? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that mentality. You're going to come and settle this land and you're not going to be attached to memories of, of your home and let that sort of lessen your resolve to, to build something new. Mm -hmm. um, and by kind of cutting them off and burning the ships, as it were, uh, these people built um, what I would even call kind of like a, almost like a, a German, it wasn't just like, these weren't just like markets that they built for temporary uh, living. This was like a huge network of, of seven major cities, 270 different localities, villages, um, fortified uh, towns, fortified churches, which is an interesting phenomenon. And because this area was relatively un... This is what I find most... This is what intrigued me about the area originally and in looking into it, is because it was untouched by the bombing in World War II. And so you have all of these medieval cities that are... that were not impacted by um, the bombing from the West. And it's kind of unlike other places in Germany where only small towns were spared. You actually have like larger cities that were remained intact. Um, and the, the concept of citadel towns was kind of cool because they don't have those in the West either. Yeah. So, well, I mean, can you, what, what's like, which have you been to any of these towns? Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, that, yeah, expand on that. Cause I mean, I, I, I've heard of this like church towns or uh, church fortresses. Yes. And, um, and a lot of them are abandoned. Um, you'll go, seek some of these places out because the German population uh, for a long, up until the 1930s, the, the, all of these towns were populated 
almost exclusively by Germans. When I say segregated, what I was referring to before, you will have, this is, this village is for Hungarians. This village is for Germans. This village is for Romanians. Um, and Romanians have now moved into these places. Uh, unfortunately, this is, here comes the black pill. Um, gypsies have actually moved in exclusively to some of the, I saw you jerk um, the into the, some of these German villages and have taken them over and of course they've fallen completely into disrepair um, but in places where there's higher concentrations of Germans living and there are some places where 40% of the, the town is German still. They have German-speaking schools. Um, the German government actually sends money to keep these people where they are to kind of keep this intact, um, to maintain the churches. But as those towns become depopulated by you know Germans growing up in those places and then seeing that Romania doesn't offer them uh, any sort of decent living, the, the young people... Uh, of the modern Transylvania Saxons. Oh, yeah, i got to go to Frankfurt or yes. Berlin, or it's oh, cool. Yep, and they never come back. Um, but there's a whole movement of kind of younger Transylvania Saxons of trying to maintain the culture and trying to keep it in place. Um, but to give you an example of some of the cities, uh, the place where they went... Actually, let's back up a little bit. So there was what they called a golden charter that was written, kind of a royal decree uh, by, uh, I think it was King Andrew II of, of Hungary. Um, and essentially it said that Germans can come and settle um, and they don't have to pay taxes. They don't have to pay taxes. They don't have to pay the wine duty. They don't have to pay the land duty. Um, they have free use of the forests, the land, anything that they want. Um, they have to protect the land when called to do it. Uh, but there's no limit on who can come. But you know, there's essentially no limits in it put them in a, they essentially did become the elites, sort of tying this back to Saxon only meaning elites. They essentially, essentially did become the elites because the people that lived in this place already, relatively uninhabited, but there are Romanians living there, um, they didn't have those rights. Uh, and so the Germans who moved in, then even if they were just settlers and farmers and, and some levels of merchant class, uh, they became the elites by virtue of the fact that they had the royal charter and they were entitled to be there and they didn't have to pay tax. And that was what, the 1200s? Yeah, 1200s. And so the first German settlements happening like the 1100s or so? Those, not really settlements, just yeah, German just knights, mercenaries yeah. and knights and having, but, but the and that, was, and that was, just to clarify, like a separate phenomenon. That was, there were the German knights. Earlier phenomenon. And then there was also the. Who built a name for themselves as Saxons. Right, well, and then, the, the invitation of the Teutonic knights there. That came later. Was later. Yeah, okay, yes. later. Yeah. When they, when they wanted the expertise of the castle building and the fortress construction. Because the early fortresses were good, but they were kind of rudimentary and some of them still exist. Um, and it wasn't, yeah, it was King Andreas, King Andrew. And King Giza uh, was another king who who initially invited them. King Andreas is the one who codified this golden charter. And then it was recodified over and over again and reaffirmed for 600 years. Um, and so to give people an idea of the distance, this is roughly a thousand kilometers from Germany. Um, the majority of these people came from uh, Luxembourg, uh, Wallonia, um, and really kind of in Westphalia, kind of northwest Germany predominantly. Yeah, but even some French speakers yes. too, like Wallonia. Yes. Fr old French speaking mm. people too. Yep. And uh, 
a few Bavarians, but not that many. Which you kind of because the Bavarians all went to like uh, Bohemia mm-hmm. and some other areas. But when you see Transylvania, you think, well, this is the you think Germans were here, you think Bavarians were here, but it wasn't Bavarians; it was uh, Northwest Germans. Because um, that would that would have been Western Germany was. Sort of weird. I mean, it's still true today that the Germany-France frontier is like the most developed industrial area of Europe and the highest population. Oh, yeah. Yes, and that was still that was true in the 1100s as well. Overpopulation. So it sort of had that same phenomenon that you have when you talk about Amer- colonization in the Americas. We always talk about well, Europe was overpopulated, and there were these problems, and people wanted to leave to, to come to a land of opportunity and get uh, free land and, and free stuff. Uh, you know, with, with all this with, financial with, tumult, what's going well, on? Well, well with, yes. with, with a, a understanding that, yeah, you're going to need to, you know, maybe fight some savages. Mm-hmm. Uh, or be indentured slave. Well, in some cases, slaves. People don't talk about white slavery, but that was a thing. Was it a thing in uh, Siebenbergen? Uh, no. Oh, okay. They were not slaves. In fact, they were told, I mean, you get to be go live amongst your people and be free, essentially. So, it's kind of like a... People are very excited about it. Um, but we didn't actually talk about that with the Dang uh, is yeah. what was the catalyst for it? Overpopulation is, is one. But was there, and this is more a question to you, knowing more about uh, this, is was there some sort of philosophy? I know a lot wasn't written down, but of, you know, with, with uh, Liebenstrom, that was, like, expressed as we must push outward to expand. But... Why were these, was this sort of like just sporadic, it's too crowded, I'm going over there? Or was it, we should expand our territory so that we, you know, I, I don't know much about I, it? It was sort of, my impression of it is that it was ad hoc mostly, mm-hmm. uh, like groups of people, and it was like, Teutonic Knights would probably be the biggest example of like organized colonization. Yes. But it was, you know, it's debated in history for the last 200 years what the Drang Nachosten was. Uh, the earlier versions from the Romantic period, of course, say it was a uh, you know, total race war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, this is the Germanic people spreading civilization to these uh, Eastern barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> but then the more modern version as well, it was about peace and trade and love. And I, it, it's as if with anything, it's sort of a, a mix of the two. That's what's so and, ironic about Ben Franklin and his comments about the swarthy Germans. It's like, first of all, you're probably of well, Saxon he, he said, Well, he literally says in that quote, I mean, I... I contend that that quote is a joke. I know, referring I know, to, you're is. referring to the quote of uh, the swarthy peoples like the Italians and the French and the Germans and the Swedes. He says Swede yes. in the quote. Which is and like, modern historians will quote this as if it meant that white only meant England, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. Yeah, we, ridi- ben Franklin was obviously making a joke. He was, yes. <laughs> Borzoi um, totally upended uh, all of that in in one of the deep dive on Ben Franklin, and it, it is it is a joke. He because people point to it as Ben Franklin was hilarious, right? But people, <laughs> I point mean, to you read his like, stuff that he says he about was like racist against how, how you people. should like his things about oh courting older women and stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like clearly meant as a complete joke. Yeah, yeah. It, it is, and but people will point to it as oh Ben Franklin was anti white. It's like oh god. Um, that's not what he was doing. He was ambassador to France. He was, yeah. you know, chilling and, and making jokes with the yeah. bros. So he was going to say some stuff mm-hmm. that even now is hilarious. It is funny. 
Um, yeah, but except, it, only if you're like an anti-racist uh, or you're like, well, yeah, he obviously was uh, the, the, this. <laughs> it's like, no, no, this is this is us. This is you or me transported to the 18th century. This is the sort of shit we would be saying on on our off time oh, oh, that would get misquoted 200 years later. Oh, to although in, Ben Franklin was pretty unambiguous about wanting to set aside money to educate niggers. Well, he was a swipple. I know. Yes. And especially toward the end of his life. But I want to say this because this is the, this is a quote in Latin, um, found in some church documents from the 12th century, um, about the perspective on these Germans that they first encountered, um, translated from Latin. It said, who among other things are also distinguished by the nobility of their lineage, which the earlier Kings, meaning the Hungarian Kings also valued and appreciated would have been excellent. So it's speaking to the, the the noble origins, very distinguished is another passage about the type of people um, that they felt were the Saxons. They had this kind of reputation about them. And so people, you know, people will say, well, why did the Romanians just let them do this? It's like, well, these people came in and made it so that they didn't these people, the Romanians were being kind of hunter-gatherer, sort of like not really organized communities before. There aren't like old Romanian cities that existed. I'm sorry, it's just not right. there. Um, and so when the Germans came in and were bringing trade from, oh God, the Levant, and then from Europe became this kind of through point, through point for trade, It these people suddenly had food readily available. They suddenly had alcohol readily available. Um, they luxury goods. Yeah, luxury um, goods. They could they could not have to you know starve. Um, they actually had gainful employment. Um, you know, they, it was well. Political organization brings all those things too. Right. You have you have a, a imported like warrior elite class who says, okay, cut it out, cut it out with your your feuding. Yes, and go farm that damn field. Right. And you're going to have more stuff. And you're going to do well for yourself. And so why did this go on for 600 years? Because it worked out well. I would even argue, and this will, well, we're already, we're already racking up quite a score, pissing people off. <laughs> I would argue that the, that the Dachin, Romanian, whatever you want to call this ethnic group that was there, the 100,000 that went to Alba Iulia and demanded their independence, um, these people never had it better, including to today. Then when they when well we, now you're just shitting on my my ancestors and their their service in the Roman army you know <laughs> yes <laughs> well right actually the Romans Romans probably it was probably a pretty good deal too so the let's call that the second Reich the third Reich would be the um, Transylvanians and then the fourth Reich was when they were allied with Hitler right wait hold on. First Reich is the Roman Empire. Second Reich is oh, I thought I was I was leaving one off. So the Roman Empire's First Reich. Okay. Transylvania would be. I'm saying specifically for those people. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Would be the second when the Germans were in charge in Romania. Right, the Second yeah. Reich. The Third Reich would have been Hitler when they were uh, with Codriano, and mm-hmm. there's been nothing since. It's dead, essentially. Yeah. Does that line up roughly? I, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if you're if you're a Romanian and you've had people like coming in and making things great, like what are the what are the high moments? Romans, maybe Greeks, uh, the Transylvania Saxons, and then Hitler for like two years. So, and if you want to count like Transylvanian Saxons and then later Habsburgs. Mm-hmm. Yes, Habsburgs, I Which guess. Which is sort of an extension of this, in a way. It, it is, yeah. 
Um, so uh, there's a legend, of course, and I think this is important because it's sort of this is the story that they told themselves, not the story of the Golden Charter and we were invited here and blah, blah, blah. But there's a legend, um, and this will get me talking about some of the cities, the founding of the main city. Two Saxon leaders, Hermann and Wolf, um, arrived in Hermannstadt, which is now modern-day Sibiu, which is a beautiful... If you ever have a chance to go, it is a city of 150,000, 200,000 people. Um, it has the original citadel town. It has all of the original buildings. Um, and it is a... Like, when you walk around this... Because people don't think of Romania as a place that you can walk around and feel like you're in Germany. And I would say all of Transylvania, you feel like you're in Germany. You don't feel like you're in Romania, not just because of the, the countryside, but because of the buildings. And even to some extent, the people you go East to Bucharest and Constanza, and there is zero uh, German influence. Yeah. I'd put on my tracksuit and give me, yes. Yeah. It looks like, you know, apartment blocks and whatever. I haven't looked into the history to understand why all of these places that are that somehow missed bombings from the Allies um, were not destroyed by Ceausescu, but probably because he realized that that would have been just because I think because Romanians don't look at these cities as they don't have disdain for the Germans. Like even if they demanded their independence, I think they look that they really hate the Hungarians. They don't really hate the Germans. They kind of. But they, there is some cargo culting of the German stuff where they they like we did this like this is ours so it's kind of like eh, it's, you didn't do that um, why is it all falling apart now in some places uh, but that's kind of the thing but uh, Hermannstadt is the main city and all of these places uh, there kind of have their own um, they have a German name but if you look at Hermannstadt's um, sort of city logo. It's two cross swords. And all the manhole covers say Hermannstadt when you walk around Sibiu today. Most people call it Sibiu. A lot of people, but if you say Hermannstadt, people know what you mean. Um, German is still spoken there in some places. Um, when you walk around that place, there are the German beer halls that have been there for a hundred years when it was still a German city. And so it's not a like Disneyfication. Oh, this is like a German place. Let's look really quaint and have girls in the dresses and everything. No, it's actually like there's a German council there. There's uh, the um, Samuel von Bruckenthal. Like there's a very well-known German school there where Romanians like wealthy Romanians take their children to be educated because if their children learn German, it's the ticket to the beautiful Frankfurt, as you were saying, mm -hmm. but, but it's a ticket out of Romania. Um, so there's still an element of like the Germans or the culture that everybody is kind of aspiring to, even though they've not been kind of in charge there for a long time. Um, but the two cross swords essentially were the Saxon leaders Totally legendary. It's very sim similar to Romulus and Remus. Well, it's very similar, I was going to say, to Hengst and Horsa with the Saxons. Yes. I don't know if it's like a, a Germanic thing. It's why these two guys came and, <laughs> and yeah. they, set, they set us up here. They set us up. And that's the story that they told people. Not that they were invited by a Hungarian king, but they put their swords in the ground, one pointed north and one pointed east, and split into two groups and went off and started settling the land. And if anybody lost their sword, it meant a lo the loss of the country. And the people that went to the east lost their sword. And they were conquered. The east by would be Moldova? Yes. Uh -huh. And they were conquered by the Turks. 
Um, and there are some smaller sediments, settlements that still exist there, but the bulk of Transylvania is in that basin to the west of the Carpathian Range that kind of curves around in the end. Yeah. So, but that was the story that they told and kind of held them in place for 600 years because this was kind of the legend that was repeated amongst the German people about we came here, we settled this land, and they did. But we came here. Nobody invited us here. We made this ours. And when they were dealing with this tripartite of the Scout Secklers, um, the Richard Sacklers, we'll just call them, um, and the Hungarians, uh, this is the story that they told so that they were kind of like, yes, we're a geographic minority in terms of population, but we have a right to be here because this is ours. We put our sword in the ground. And it wasn't until the 1800s when historians started looking into this and saying, well, that's not really actually true. There was actually a charter. and Well, actually. Yeah, well, actually. Um, but the charter, it's like, well, why would you be invited here? This is not a... Like, this is an area that we didn't really explore and I didn't look into in the researches. How many other times in history have the Germans been invited to places to, like, settle the country because there was nobody else to do it? Well, America the, the, and... Uh, yeah, well, the Russians invited them to the Volga. That's right, The yes. million, million Volga Germans. Right. Uh, For such a horrible people, we keep getting invited everywhere. Like, <laughs> I mean, why is that? Why do people want us around all the time? And then they don't want us around. Probably because we give them... We build really cool stuff for people and then... They, like, say that we tried to gas them in Holocaust, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's how that goes. Um, but, so, uh, this Dang Nakosten, um, these people that were recruited, uh, do you know about any, was there any resistance in Germany from, like, depopulation, or was it because... The fact that these places had more people than they knew what to do with, they were like, I don't, I don't know, but I, go, I imagine, like, like, just because of the political weakness of Germany from the late 1100s on. Yeah. Uh, like, really, the Ger the German Empire of the Middle Ages lasted from about, say, Otto, Otto the Great, the early 900s, to... Uh, Late 1100s or so maybe the early 1200s. Empire or the Second Empire? The, the German... Which the, Reich are we on now? Well, it's the Holy Roman Empire, right? But the Holy Roman Empire describes that whole time from Charlemagne. It's arguable whether it starts with Charlemagne in 800 or whether it starts with Otto the Great um, in the 900s and then goes until 1806. But the Holy Roman Empire was uh, you know, a legal entity. But the German Empire... Of the Middle Ages as a you know, like fairly unified political powerhouse, really was a thing from Otto the First to Frederick the Second, who died in 1250, with some serious destabilization, destabilizing in the late 1100s, early 1200s. So, I imagine that a lot of it was because of the political um, instability and disunity of Germany that it just there was nobody to say like you can't leave right so i mean it's sort of the same thing with colonies with uh you know germans coming to the united states in the 17 and 1800s there was no unified germany so people could just go yeah um and that wasn't true in england was it you no. know, you couldn't leave like you were 
tied to the land, I mean, for a long period of time. Yeah. Couldn't leave without permission. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think a lot of people think about that. They assume everybody was kind of locked into Europe and you were, le- were released only under certain circumstances. But in reality, like Germany... When you think of like Germany in the 1200s, 1300s, think of like city-states in ancient Greece, just everything was, was broken up and maybe one duke controlled a fairly big area, but for the most part it was pretty decentralized. But still not the frontier. It was still... No, by that, by that time it was, you know, very... It had been the frontier in the Roman times between France, uh, the Rhine and the Danube yes. the frontier, and so that was... Uh, and this is... With the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, that's sort of a a thing you notice in history is that when an area has been the frontier region for a few hundred years, the people start to get very well organized. Yes. Because they have to be in order to stay, stay safe and have any kind of political stability. And so usually after a frontier situation has prevailed for a while, then once things get shaken up, then you can have a big empire emerge there. So like that's basically why Charlemagne's empire emerged on the, the Rhine frontier or the old Roman Rhine frontier. And same with England with Hadrian's wall and, uh, well, I mean, later probably right with like, um, like England and it's, uh, against the, the Welsh and, and the Scots, mm-hmm. very savage wars for a long time that caused England to be a great state. Same thing with America, with our frontier, with the savage Indians or Spain. I mean, look at Spain in, in the 1500s after centuries of race war with the... Well, Spain uh, was just like, well, let's just fuck everybody. Let's just fuck all the natives. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> that's... French did the same thing. Um, I know people don't like to hear that, but that's what they did. Um, yeah. But they did... There were kind of... There were some Spanish who kind of... I think it was the low. I think the misnomer about that is that they all did that. I think, especially if you go to like Mexico City, um, a lot of white, blonde hair, blue eyed Mexicans in and in all throughout Latin America because they did remain um, genetically distinct. Um, it was there was a decided effort to try to breed them out with like the lower classes. Some of it was successful, some of it not so much. Um, but we, I think, are are. M.O. was to kind of stay separate, wasn't it? I mean, the Germans didn't go interbreed. There was no interbreeding with people in this in this part. Even yeah. even when you look at pictures of Transylvania Saxons in the 1930s, um, they they're distinctly German. You can tell that they're German. Well, it's like with the Amish with us. I mean, yes, <laughs> they look they look <laughs> they 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 won't interbreed. No, and the uh, the, the the Amish population has doubled in the last 10 years. You know that, right? Yeah. Have you read about this? Yeah. yeah. And the joke is, and Jews are actually getting very concerned about this for a while, that if left unchecked, and there was no really... Because they they're, they're unfettered by like economic ups and downs. They're just fine. They don't bank. They have all cash. Um, they say that in 100 years, like the Amish population is going to start... I mean, it's like exponentially increasing um, to the point where... If the Amish were left alone, I think for 150 years, like they would be the majority population in America, like in spite of all other demographic trends, like you can look this up. Jews were very like freaking out about this study because like you can't get the whole idea of coming to America is that you have fewer children. Like all the you know Mexicans come here, people from Latin America, all of a sudden they go from four births uh, per woman to like a half. And it's like, I 
The Amish, though, and I'm not. I'm well, not. I, I do. There's a comparison here with the Amish and the the Siebenberger Germans, mm-hmm. which is the the Amish, the Siebenberger Germans were invited or came, whatever you want to say, for military purposes. Yes, and there there was a, a component of you have to fight people, you have to be organized, you have to. I think part of the Golden um, Charter, Charter yeah. was you have to provide 500 knights at any time, ready yep. to, ready to go. The Amish. You know why? Why don't we have that deal with them? What What is wrong with the United States government that they didn't say, "Hey, <laughs> you have to people, fight. We're going to like we're going to give you we're going to give you these tax incentives that you're going to take ruthless advantage of." Fine, yeah. But like, where's my 500 knights? Yeah. It's like I'm sorry, we don't wear any. Oh, yeah, Siebenberger Germans over Amish any day. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's just funny, um, and I've made this point a few times. That when when people say, oh, you know, the collapsing birth rate, that's just the result. It's just society. It's just the way the society is going and progressing. It's like, well, these people live here in modern 2022 society, and there's still five births per woman. How is that? Why is that happening? Could it be something about modernity that's causing the birth rate to collapse? I don't know. It just might. These people had a lot of children, too, um, because the seed groups were only a few three to four thousand people. Every 50 years, and it exploded into 600,000 um, uh, people who were all, I mean, these people were all like very comfortably like middle class. Um, there weren't, there wasn't uh, abject poverty, but there also, there were some elites within Transylvania Saxon society, but um, for the most part, it was what you would expect from, I'm not saying they're a national socialist, but they were kind of this, wasn't this, it was very egalitarian. Um, and they were successful. So it was like successfully egalitarian. It wasn't like everybody's, they all, they all had enough. Everybody had, if you walk around and see kind of the homes that people lived in, um, there weren't you know, kind of the outskirts where all the poor lived. It was kind of everybody had a decent-sized home um, in these towns and, and did pretty well for themselves, and the community would kind of rally around and take care of people that, that had a problem. I mean, that's kind of... Yeah. Being well, on the frontier and being under attack kind of lent itself to kind of that sort of mentality of, like, we're all in this together. Not only do we have to grow and produce our own food and save it throughout the winter, but we could also... The Mongols could show up at any time. So let's let's kind of go through the enemies that were attacking this area. So. Sure. At first, it was steppe peoples. Mongols came in the 1240s. 1241. Yeah. 1241. Yep. And after, you know, because throughout European history, it's been like the, the steppe region, which goes from, there's a little tiny steppe land of Hungary, and then bigger one, Ukraine, and then... Romania U- itself Ukraine, is Ukraine, a steppe. Yeah, Ukraine yeah. just opens up, you know, everything east of Transylvania just opens up into steppe land that goes all the way to Mongolia, pretty yes. much. So societies that lived on the steppe were horse archer people, and if they ever got, whenever they managed to get organized, they could just erupt into Europe. And but that sort of changed in the 1400s with the Turks coming into the Balkans mm-hmm. up from the south and being an organized empire and being uh, able to organize all those peoples who were formerly part of the Byzantine Empire. Yep. Uh, so what was the role of the Siebenberger Saxons in uh, maintaining the Carpathian frontier throughout the times of uh, the Turks? Uh, that's So just to give people an idea of the, the geography, I mean, these are 
like you said, West Virginia of Europe, um, and in some cases, even more extreme elevation, very few ways of getting an army through these mountains. And so what they did was um, built this network of citadel towns um, kind of along that Carpathian Ridge um, in these kind of strategic areas where you could move an army through kind of a certain pass. Um, Rasnov is one place, well, it's your, um, Rashburg, I think is the German name for it, uh, was a town, these, like, they built them on top of mountains, they built them kind of in the crevice between where people would come through, um, and this was increased with the Teutonic Knights to kind of expand this, um, because they realized settlers... And being able to cough up some knights every once in a while and building their kind of primitive, like, think of uh, like a stockade kind of fortress, mm-hmm. that's not enough. To I'm going st- to compare this to our current political situation. Just say oh, sure. you know, when you're when you're di- when you're doing everything by everybody just kind of goes out and do- every little group is goes out and does their own political uh, yes. military thing. Right. It's a little. It's less efficient than when you have the Teutonic Knights come in and say, "Okay, fuckers, like this. Yes. This is not working. We're going to do a wor- survey. We're going to we're going to look at everything. Here are the gonna, seventeen strategic places say, that you build a castle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> here's where we're going to get the stone from. We're not building walls out of logs. We're going to get it. We're going to get economies of scale going on. We're going to get all the stone in. Yes. We're going to build the biggest castle, the best castle. Uh, yeah. And you guys are going to be great. You're going to love it. Um, <laughs> and you're going to you're going to farm. You can give us the food. We're going to stock up so much food you wouldn't believe it. And everybody loved it except the Hungarian king, who was like, "Yo, yo, yo! I didn't, I didn't really want another like you know a Germany right here. Okay, <laughs> I just wanted you because I think what they had in mind was we're going to let these Germans come in. We're going to reap the economic benefit of them being here. We're going to make them the cannon fodder for anything coming from the east. But we don't want to allow them to get so big and so... Because he's the one that invited the Teutonic Knights. Right, because once you get so big, then those Germans, if they get tired of fighting Turks, so the Turks kind of... right. Or wither, the, wither away. Or the king starts saying, like, hey, you're going to start paying taxes. And now. then the Germans are like, well, hey, hold on a second. Uh, you, guy back there in Bucharest, what are you doing? Yeah. Or Budapest, whatever. Budapest, yeah. Whatever stupid Hungarian, middle, <laughs> Central European city. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh about Hungary. But um, at least Hungary's more of a country than. Um, well, well than I'll Ryan. have to have Warren on and let him, uh, let him defend. Let him r- respond to some of this, yeah. I was I was sitting here thinking it's like is Warren because Warren's not here doing the show with you that uh, you're gonna just unload on the Hungarians. This is why you picked me to do this one, yeah. Um, but no, reading more about it, it's like well, the Hungarians are very disorganized until the year. It's funny, the year one thousand one A.D. is when they finally like got their shit together and organized their country. But they were very much like Germany. Um, Russia was kind of the same way, like. Uh, Moscow was not really founded until what thousand AD or something like no, that. No, later. I mean, uh, Kiev was founded in uh, well nine hundreds. It became Christian in nine eighty eight. Yeah, and, first, and, and it doesn't mean nothing existed there. It's just that it was just Russia was disorganized. Just disorganized, you know, until the Mongols came. And it's just, it's just like with the Roman uh, or the, uh, the 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 Gaul Germania frontier, like. Uh, the German the Germans were disorganized before the Romans came and started beating them up and they're like okay right. I guess we gotta form bigger confederations and then same thing with the Russians against the Mongols so right. like, okay I guess we you know maybe need to the dissident get right, organized the here. dissident right existed before NJP came along it was just 
disorganized and not really sure what to do with itself. But now here we are. Um, it's it's got shit together somehow. Wow, man. So. Maybe we need more. Uh, we need more yeah, random individual doing whatever. Yeah. It's, it's just like in private enterprise, politics is the same thing. Yeah. You just do whatever the fuck you want, and naturally the best will emerge. Well, it's an important point, because without, uh, I would argue, some key ingredients to this were obviously Germanic admixture, but also the Teutonic Knights coming in and building these citadel uh, fortresses, fortified churches, because the churches existed, but then they came in and fortified them. They literally look like if you took a castle and a church, and and it's it's weird seeing... Because these, we're not talking about Catholic churches either, because you go throughout Europe and you think of, oh, I'm going to go see these beautiful churches in France. Well, they're Catholic. You go to beautiful churches in Italy. Well, they're Catholic. Um, some of them in, in England are Catholic. But you go to these beautiful churches that are in Transylvania, they're all Reformation Protestant churches, and they're beautiful. Um, but it's really weird seeing them with... Um, are you tur- talking, you're talking about the ones built after... 1520-ish. Well, they the churches, yes, some of them are Catholic and then were changed over to, uh-huh. to uh, Protestant. Like the Black Church in Kronstadt, which is now Brasov, um, it's called the Black Church. That was a Catholic church that became a Protestant church, and then they turned it into a fortress. But it's really weird seeing medieval churches with turrets and uh, battlements and then ring the, the well, church. Well, I mean, it makes sense because you're starting off with the church. You've already got the narrow windows. Yes. And you've already got the stone. Yep. So maybe make the windows a little bit narrower, a little bit smaller, put some turrets on. No more stained glass. Yeah. And yeah, and build, make the church a keep and build kind of a wall around it in some of these larger cities that expanded. Um, but the name, you, you might be thinking to yourself as someone who is a German speaker, Siebenberger, uh, Siebenbergen is not Transylvania. Transylvania means like through the forest. Yeah. Um, but Siebenberger doesn't, that's not what that means in German. It's the seven cities or the seven chairs in some cases. What does that refer to? Well, it refers to the seven major cities that they founded, um, which is Hermannstadt, which is the largest one. Kronstadt, which is the one that I just mentioned. And if you go there today, Sibiu and Brasov are like the two biggest cities, 150,000, 200,000 people. Um, Bistritza is another one. Schasburg, which is called Sigishwara. The the Romanian names are just like, why would you call this Sigishwara? It's like Schasburg. Imagine taking an Italian and try to say a German word. (laughs) Yes. What do you get? Pretty much. Um, Mulbach is now called Sebisch. Um, Bruce was the German name. It's now called Orashti. Uh, and then Klausenberg is now called, you ready for this? Cluj-Napoca. I'm like, Cluj-Napoca? Can we just, I mean, Klausenberg was better. And I forget what the Roman name of Cluj-Napoca was. But when I say that the Germans founded these cities, yes, they did. But almost all of them were founded on the Roman ruins of major settlements that were there before. Cluj-Napoca was a huge Roman settlement, and then it was abandoned, then the Germans came, and it was Klausenberg. So isn't it funny? The Germans come, these Roman ruins are just left, nobody's living in them, they're in disrepair. The Germans probably knocked a lot of it down, but they resettled, they decided that the very best place to be from a strategic 
uh, from a water standpoint, from food gathering and whatever, is right where the Romans picked. Right. And so, you've also got all the stone on hand. It's already build, there. But build whatever That's you want. That's the main thing, yes. Yeah. And buy a river and, and whatever else. Um, but the seven major cities, Sieben, Seven, Burgen. So Siebenburger Saxon is essentially seven chairs, seven cities, Saxons, the people that occupied these places and all of the all of the towns and villages kind of in between. So um, all of those cities that I just listed, um, they are all in existence today. They're all populated. Germans are like five or six percent of the population. Hungarians are maybe five or ten percent and the rest is Romanian. Mm -hmm. um, and now Germans have still managed to eke out kind of their own identity in these places. Um, but it's, it's definitely disappearing pretty quickly. Um, but it's not disappearing because of, um, migration from Eritrea or whatever. Like Romania is still like 98%, um, ethnically Romanian, Hungarian, or German, um, thing that people don't know either is that there's only like a thousand Jews in the entire country. Most mm. of them left. Um, right. I remember you, you and talking Warren about, talking about that. Yeah, yeah. They, they left. Um, but see, the thing is, people think, wow, Ceausescu, he, he made Israelis pay to have their, to allow the Jews to leave, which is what he did. It was called this, the, the Jews call it the, the, ran, the great ransom or something like that. <laughs> but he made them pay. It was like $500 per Jew because the Jews wanted to populate Israel. But, and you think, wow, Ceausescu based, but not really because he did the same thing to the Germans. He made the German, uh, West Germany pay to allow the Germans to leave. They didn't want, they, they wanted to leave. Um, but he wouldn't let them leave unless Germany paid for each one. So he ransomed the Jews and he also ransomed the Germans out of the country because, you know, he wants well, to build I mean, who gonna, who else was going to build his, uh, well, I guess not build his churches, but because Ceausescu, communist. Yeah, yeah, but he uh, did allow the, the the Orthodox Church to kind of. But uh, so, going back to these Turks, though, so the Turks okay. Turks though. came into the Balkans in like the 1400s. They they were actually fairly advanced in the Balkans even before they took Constantinople. Everybody knows 1453 Constantinople, but uh, yes. Battle of Kosovo against the Serbs, where they destroyed the Serbian Empire, was I think 14. 40s? Wait, no, they celebrated 1990... No, 1989. No, 1389. 1389 yes. was the Battle of Kosovo. So, the Turks were already well-established in the Balkans in, in the late 1300s. They got a big setback at the Battle of Ankara against Tar uh, Tamerlane in 1402, where he thrashed them, captured the Sultan, put him in a golden cage, Bayezid mm -hmm. um, II. And then uh, the Ottomans recovered and the Ottomans were another one of those peoples right on the frontier. They were the, uh, they had been the most advanced faction of Turkic steppe warriors in Anatolia, pressing right up against Byzantine territory for uh, a while before they really became uh, started to become an empire and, and take over the other Turkic peoples and take over the Byzantines and, and push into the Balkans. And then once they got Constantinople. Then they really were able to consolidate their position with Mehmed II mm -hmm. and start pushing farther into Europe. Mehmed II and his Jewish advisors and his Jewish harems and really you know, that was oh, a, oh yes I didn't read that in the oh yeah the book by a lot of 
Brit Bong. A lot of Jewish involvement. Um, Ken the, Ross. Because oh, Ottoman centuries by Lord Ken Ross. I read. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying ago. to say that they're all they're all Jewish, but a lot of the the advisors were Jewish. Um, the military advisors, some of his generals were, um, and a lot of you know the the ability for well, them. He, he supposedly himself spoke Turkish, Persian, Latin, Greek. Arabic, of course, yeah, and Hebrew, yes, which is like that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Usually, Muslim leaders, I mean, I'm sure when they say he spoke them, like he, you know, was had right. passable ability, and, he, and he most said he, sp- he spoke he spoke yes. Turk, yes. he spoke Turk Roach, <laughs> and you know, yeah, he was somebody probably fairly competent in Arabic and maybe not so much in the others, but Hebrew is weird, like they didn't even claim that. Yeah, it, well, um, I think it's Genghis Khan's sons. Uh, all had Jewish teachers and advisors as well. Well, you um, got to go to the best. Yes. <laughs> and the Khanates, a lot of them, you know, even when they, you know, switched over, they weren't Mongol, they became more Islamic, they had Jewish advisors. Um, and not to say that they were Jewish, but they, they took a lot of influence from them. And a lot of the drive of wanting to push into European territory and kind of destroy uh, Christianity was... Jews and Arabs kind of had a kind of a mutual well, I'm not, I'm not gonna, interest in doing that. I mean, I'll, I'll yeah, Jews are bad and stuff, but like I'm not going to I'm not going to say that the Turks conquered or wanted to conquer Europe because of Jewish advisors. No, 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 no. no. But the Jewish advisors, the Turks, um, want, the Turks like anybody else, wanted to conquer people. Yes, because I mean, oh, yeah. it's, it's awesome. Well, yes, and they had they had a mutually shared kind of interest. Um, in in going into those areas, and, and Jews um, knew those territories well because of travel and network of kind of understanding with merchant networks and kind of knew just like in Spain they knew how hold the doors of Toledo open and kind of how to do sabotage in these places. A lot of that was they had Jews were known for having kind of strategic intelligence. That they're not sure how you know how do they get it well because they are constantly traveling and talking to each other. Not a lot of people are traveling. The whole uh, Silk Road sort of exploded that ability um, when that opened up. When they were able to sort of um, break down a lot of the danger of the Silk Road and made it kind of a passable place for um, mercantilism, free flow from east to west, is what allowed a lot of the explosion of the Ottoman Empire to move um, west and kind of the desire yeah. for, for goods from the east. Um, a lot of that was, yeah, anyway. But the, the Ottomans got up to, they, they took Wallachia. Yes. Uh, they got very far they, into they, the... And they, after, you know, they beat Vlad Tepesh, Vlad the Impaler, and, yes. and took Wallachia. And then Suleiman the Magnificent besieged Vienna, and which was in the 15th, uh, mid 1500s. I think 1520. Well, so. that that was the the Battle of Mohawks. Uh, yeah, Mohash. Mohawk. Oh yeah, Mohawks on the page. I don't know how it's you Mohash, say, say these yes. weird uh, hung, but that, words. That was like that was the most definitive battle in Hungary's history because I was reading that, and that was Solomon the Magnificent. Yes, right, right. Even today in Hungary, if if you're a Hungarian and um, you fall on kind of hard times. You know, something, some tragedy has fallen on you. You lose your job or who knows what it is. Someone dies in your family. Um, there's a kind of a colloquial saying of 
um, it wasn't as bad as Mohawksh because that was kind of just total devastation. They took Budapest, or they took Buda. It was still separate cities back then. They took Buda and Pest. Buda and Pest, yes. Um, and is, there it, were, is it Pest? Pest. Because uh, S, S's are Shahs. Yes, it is a Shah. Um, and there was an attempt to try to get Buda back, and they couldn't. Um, it, like, failed miserably. I forget all the details. But then there were a series of battles after that 1520-ish Mohawksh, whatever, um, that just kind of went on for a long period of time. I don't know enough about the history of kind of when when did the Ottoman Empire stop being as much of a threat. But did, did the Ottomans actually control Transylvania, or did they just sort of no. rule it as a vassal state? Uh, the Ottomans never controlled Transylvania. Ah. Wallachia um, is what was kind of like... When you look at territorial control on a map, they always kind of have Wallachia as like striped, where it because it was just constantly changing hands so often. Mm-hmm. Transylvania, they never got past the Carpathian Mountains. Um, I think they got. I don't think they ever took Transylvania. I don't think Sibiu and, and these places were. I think they bypassed that and went to Hungary, but they never got into Transylvania in the north. I think they could not get past those mountain ranges. And so did that, did, did um, the Siebenberger Germans and, and the people in Transylvania stay basically under Hungarian control? Throughout that time? Yeah. yeah. They managed to keep that territory because the kind of the ring of um, citadel towns kind of protected them in that, ba- they called the Transylvania Basin. Um, and they were able, the, the Ottomans were able to go south and then up into Hungary, into that plane, the step, the first step, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, yeah. So, thereon follows 300 years of tra- of Transylvania being sort of frontier between, like, right on the frontier between Islam and Christianity. Yes. And how did the, uh, how did the Habsburgs kind of come into this? Uh, from... Well, they were yeah. they were the ones who essentially brokered the Golden Charter and then reaffirmed it over long periods of time. Uh, so by reaffirm, every time a new leader would kind of come into power, the Germans would be like, well, hey, we got a thing going on over here. We got cities. We have a nice trade network. We've had a deal with the previous king. Um, so are you going to reaffirm this? And there's documentation showing pretty much every century that there was a new king, new representation, Habsburg Empire that would come in and say, yes, here's a decree saying that I agree with Andreas II in 12, blah, 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 that this is still in place over and over. It was reaffirmed like seven or eight times mm-hmm. um, throughout this period. And the Germans would have to come up with kind of new, because there was always a, a desire to be like, fuck your agreement. This is ours now. Like, we're taking this over. Um, but kind of new and clever ways of, of being able to kind of override that. Um, and one of the most... And I want to make this point very clear. One of the most significant factors in the Germans being able to kind of weather this storm for so long and, and kind of remain in power was their ethnic homogeneity. Um, the fact that they weren't intermarrying, that they weren't opening themselves up to kind of cultural uh, sort of subterfuge. Um, they were, they stood on their own and kind of 
maintained that. I don't know. Like, couldn't couldn't they have pursued the opposite policy of inter, of intermarry with the Romanians and Hungarians, seeing as they're racially pretty close, and then try to build up their own uh, like counter, counter empire? Racially and... pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, they. I mean, in all seriousness, they just didn't because they were. He- I mean, the Romanians were heathens. They weren't Christian, oh, right? Um, and that. Matter well, more Orthodox. to them than no, not, I don't think that they were. No, they were Christian by then, but they, they were they were Orthodox. Yes. So heathens. Yes. By the lights of the Germans. Right. They're not becoming Protestant, but they're also just not. You know, a lot of them were illiterate. They weren't. You know, I mean, that's why I think a lot of people sort of conflate Romanians with Roma, because the, they kind of weren't living that much of a different lifestyle. Um, but the Roma showed up later and then took on the name Roma. Um, it's so so annoying. Yeah. It's like they're really Indians. Well, what's they're really, really Indians. Well, what's crazy about the... I have two things I always say about the uh, the the gypsies. Yes. One, only migration ever out of India. <laughs> like, you're the only people who's ever shitty enough to have to be leave India. Right. Uh, one. Two... They were like, oh, we're not gypsies. Well, fuck you. Like, nobody knew what you were. Right. People asked you in the 1800s, like, what are you? And you're like, I don't know. They don't know. And it took, like, German historical linguistics to look at (laughs) uh, the Roma gypsy language and say, oh, this is an Indic language. Mm -hmm. You're speaking Indic. You come from India, obviously. Yes. And gypsy, of course, we thought they came from Egypt. I think they thought they came from Egypt. Mm-hmm. And that's why they said, oh, we're gypsies. We come from Egypt. We so. was Kangs. Gypsies. Yes. Yeah, it's like, all right, fine. You know, we're, we're sticking with gypsy. Like, how dare you? in Roma. Yeah. Like, we already have, that's already a word in our languages to describe several different things, but mm-hmm. things that are much nobler and much better. So this phenomenon exists in Ireland too. Are you aware of the, I had the Irish gypsies? Yes. Yeah. And they're, it's kind of, they're not the same. They're uh, not racially the same. They're just, Irish who decided to pursue the same genetic strategy as Roma. They're they're like gypsy wiggers, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like we who we gonna be like that kind of. Um, but yeah, the gypsies. But why why is that? I mean, tangent. But like, why why is the gypsy problem such a problem in Romania? Oh, like, you know, I mean, it's all, it's now a problem everywhere in Europe. I mean, you go anywhere in Europe, you see it's these, bad, but it's really but bad. Like, it's always been a thing they, in, in Romania because, well, because it was not an organized polity, and the gypsies sort of just like flooded in there because uh, everybody wanted to be kind of uh, in the backyard of the Germans and the the good. It's like if you're coming from India. <laughs> to the West, what is the first uh, up until the 1930s? Who are the, who are the best people you can leech off of? Well, who's or, the first group of people you're going to encounter along your way that actually like built something worth sticking around? Transylvania Saxons. Who to the east of them would have been? What would have been there? I mean, maybe Ukraine or whatever. But um, because uh, you know Russia was more organized, I think. Um, it was kind of frontier and they were taking advantage of the fact that it was like a transit point, I think as well. Makes sense. Yeah. My understanding with the Habsburgs and like the interesting thing about Habsburg history is you always hear about it from the perspective of 1914 and it's, this is a degenerate empire that's falling apart. It has race war going on within its own borders. If almost, uh, people hate each other and it's falling apart and it has a senile, uh, leader in power. And, but my, my thinking is always, well, wait a second. How did this empire emerge? It must have, they must have been providing some service for all of these different peoples across Central Europe to want to unify under 
some some uh, tobacco snorting degenerates in Vienna, and you know it's it's a, the pressure of the eternal Turk roach is what caused that empire to emerge. Mm-hmm. So that's like that three hundred years or so of like real Turkish pressure. Well, not even three hundred years. Really, more like fourteen hundred to say well. 1683 uh, was the last time the Turks attacked Vienna. And then after that, it was the Turks started very quickly losing everything, and the, the, the Habsburgs beat them back and pushed them back. How did the Transylvanian Germans, uh, you know, what, what role were they playing? Were they in the, the Habsburg armies, like, fighting the Turks back? I actually don't. I actually don't know the answer to that question. I know that um, there was less of a less of a mercenary angle. I think their primary role um, was that they they were to stay where they were. I don't think that they left. So they didn't. They didn't like see the sweet race war going on and be like, "All right, I want to get in on that action." They were like, "No, actually, hold on." Well, no, they're, they're but I can make some money. They were supposed to be there because if they if they left those places to go fight wars elsewhere. That area was kind of like a critical area of defense, and so I don't. I think that their their role was: you stay here, you maintain the citadels in this place, because the moment anybody left, it's kind of like Ottomans would think, "Oh, this is open season; we can come here." In fact, Hungarians and settlers came. The reason why there was a tripartite tripartite. Um, what is the proper pronunciation? I I, I would just say a. Uh... A three split. A triumvirate. Um, a, a, a three craft split. A menage a trois. Um, <laughs> a three craft split. Uh, <laughs> is because they were supposed to co Because the, the settlers were another group of people in the East who had defensive networks to protect from the, the Turks. So that's why they were a member of that group. Hungarians, settlers, and uh, Transylvania Saxons made up that kind of wall of yeah, right. trying to protect them. No, mil- military contribution right. or stay the fuck out of the government. And, and so I don't think it was like the Great Wall of China where they would move up and down this this wall together. It was kind of like, you're in charge of here, you're in charge of this, and you're in charge of this. Together we'll work to kind of keep it. Um, but everybody's under Hungary, and Transylvania gets these special rights to be there and this is what they give in return. And so um, I think that they were always there fighting those battles whenever they were needed. Um, but they redirected their energies a little bit once once there was no longer the pressure, once the, the immediate pressure of the Turks. Yes. But see, I think even in hindsight, we know that the Ottomans kind of unraveled and weren't as powerful and whatever... But you think in those times, kind of putting yourself back in their shoes, even if the last fight was two years ago or five years ago, the last time someone showed up, you don't know what's coming from the East. They don't have very good intel. And so there's probably at least 100 years where they maintain that defensive posture um, because they didn't know what was over the horizon. They didn't know if they were coming back. Maybe they heard rumors from the front, but okay, the, the Ottomans are no longer somebody who's going to bother us. Well, when is the next wave of Tatars going to come? Um, or, you know, whoever, whoever is going to come. We are just going to maintain this place until whatever happens. Um, and 
but eventually the fighting in hindsight, we know that the fighting kind of wound down and, um, they turned their focus toward, uh, uh, Oh God, mercantilism, um, and building these very extensive guilds. They'd been doing that all. So you're you're telling me we, you don't need Jews. If you need a mercantile class, you can just invite Germans in. In fact, when you only have Germans doing it, um, everybody in the entire society is like very prosperous and does very well. Um, but the guild, the guild system started, they were doing, it's funny, Germans, you can walk and chew gum, isn't it amazing? We don't just fight, we actually build this guild system and this network of trade simultaneously with everything else, and then when the fighting stops, they're like, oh, let's just do this now. We already have something ready-made, and that's kind of what they did, and it, it, it exploded, I mean, in, into, um, something very substantial, um. Unlike anybody had any anyone had seen uh, within 500 miles from that place. I mean, what else would have been around them that would compare? There's no such network in Poland like this. Hmm. Um, there's nothing like this in in Bulgaria. Ooh, shots fired. Yeah, there's nothing like this in Serbia. Um, you know, let it, alone the Ukraine. Let alone the Ukraine. Um, there's nothing. Uh, this was kind of like. Talk about shining city on a hill, as we have um, uh, Ronald Reagan books sitting in this like makeshift library. Um, Transylvania really was this this elevated place in the middle of Eastern Europe, um, where there was light emanating from it that was uh, intelligent. It was civilized, and it kept the people who lived there safe. So why wouldn't you want to be? So Jesse, I just want to wrap up with uh, a couple things. First of all. We haven't discussed the Jews, and since we are who we are, we need to discuss the Jews. So what role, if any, did Jews play in Romania, particularly regarding the Siebenberg and Saxons before, say, 1800, before the kind of collapse of Ottoman power? Uh, Sure. Um, They were, they kind of moved through that area um, because of transit between the Levant and Europe. So it was kind of a high transit zone. Um, But because of the kind of distinct nature of the Transylvania Saxons, um, they, like the Romanians and the Hungarians and the other people that were trying to live in those communities and trade in those communities, they weren't permitted to be there. It wasn't like there was an exception made for Jews while they didn't allow these other groups. I know that wouldn't be unprecedented in history, but um, they just weren't there. Uh, as they, and we'll talk about this later too, but as they shifted away from being kind of uh, frontier defensive posture with the Ottomans and um, the last major battles uh, and became more kind of focused on trade and, and mercantilism that obviously attracted a lot more a lot more Jews um, and you also had them showing up because they were being kicked out of other areas um, Poland obviously became the hive of uh, Jewry in Europe in what the after 1492 um, even, I think even before that, a little bit, they were starting, starting to invite in Jews yes. in Poland, Lithuania. And, uh, yeah, it was after the 1500s. Because um, I was telling the story last night about uh, Jews claiming the invention of the bagel, but they didn't actually <laughs> invent it. And there's a, there's a whole story about um, how that came to pass uh, that involves Poland and then these kings. And I forget which king it was, like, essentially just, like, cucking and opening the doors. And that was, like, the moment, like, in the 1500s. Um, or like Vitautas or Jagiello, mm-hmm. one of those. Yeah. 
where they were banned from baking bread and, and all this. And it's like, why are they banned from baking bread? Oh, because they were um, putting poison and sand and sawdust and all kinds of garbage in the bread, and they were mm. banned from doing this. But um, they were let back in. But, of course, you know, th- throughout all these pogroms um, in, in Eastern Europe and in Russia... Uh, you know they would they would show up in Romania and right. they would, they'll go to wherever things are politically less organized and where people aren't familiar with them. Yes, except when they encountered now in, in probably almost all other areas in Eastern Europe, including with amongst the Ottomans, they would have been fine. But they show up in Transylvania and it's like, oh hi, you can't live in this town, you can't trade in this town, you can't be a part of what we're doing, but you can go live over here. That's not going to be acceptable to Jews, although they probably did um, live in some of those kind of exterior villages. In the 1800s, with kind of like the rise of of Zionism um, and this emancipatory sort of movement, um, they were kind of starting to integrate into um, the city life and kind of the elites within... Uh, Transylvania, and we'll we'll save some of what happened there with Kodrianu later. Um, yeah. Um, so we, we you mentioned to me also that the story of the Pied Piper of Hamlin yeah. <laughs> is theorized to have been a Jew story. You know, it's there's a few stories in our folklore that you know I, I heard as a kid, and then I hear again as a, an adult, and I think, wow, that sounds a lot like a Jew. <laughs> Uh, uh, Hansel and Gretel yes. is one, mm-hmm. and then the other one is Rumpelstiltskin. Yep. Sounds like a Jew. It does. Uh, so what's the Pied Piper of Hamelin? What is, I mean, I, you know, I know vaguely a guy leads the rats out of town, but... So, yeah, it's, um, what is it? Der, der Rattenfinger von Hamelin. Um, der Rattenfinger? Yes. <laughs> the, the, the finger, the taker of the rats. It's the finger of the well, rats. Well, because yes. the, word, the word finger in English is interesting. Uh, it comes from the old English verb fingen, which is fingon, I guess, yeah. which is the same as the German verb fingen, which means to catch or take. Oh, really? And so we have, this, catch right, we have this word finger in English. We've lost the verb. Right. But the, we still have finger as a These word. These are for catching things? Yeah, they're yes. the catchers. <laughs> I mean, it is what so, they do. So the Latin finger is the, the rat... <laughs> The rat <laughs> catcher. catcher, yeah. Well, this guy, um, and I stumbled into this because I, you know, I have some background knowledge on just this general history. But you know, again, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing anything. And you always learn something new, and I learned a lot of new things. Um, this is why I love this kind of deep dives into this because you always learn something new. Even if I go back to this five years from now, I'll learn something new and be like, I can't believe we didn't mention that during this this recording. But that's fine. Um, Pied Piper. Uh, I was reading about the different waves of migrations that came into Transylvania. Um, and this, in the, I mentioned earlier that, uh, this, this whole process of settlers going to, um, Transylvania wasn't just the King says, I need people to go here. And then like once a month he makes that announcement and people are like, I'll go. Let me go, please. <laughs> um, it's. It was actually, they had a pretty intricate network of what they called locators. Uh, in German, it's literally spelled like locator, like with a K. Um, yeah. And uh, it's essentially a professional headhunter to find, because they didn't just take anybody who wanted to go. It, they, they specifically, especially in the beginning when it was purely defensive, they picked people um, who would be good for that role. And then they 
pick people. And then once, as kind of time went on, they needed, you know, kind of like with uh, the Jamestown colony in America, eventually it was like, we need more women. We need a lot more women. There's like a whole ship of women. Yeah. that We need few, fewer gentlemen, more women. Yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, I forget the name of the ship of like all women that showed up in Jamestown, but like... Oh, I um, bet that was a... <laughs> <laughs> That's when they spotted that coming up the James River. Like, the docks were stuck. <laughs> yes. And they all come off and they're, they're very homely and <laughs> whoever wanted to leave and go on a ship, I guess not very, not very nice. But um, uh, the they they had to recruit people. Um, and there's this story that I came across about these 130 German children who arrived. And you sort of back into the story of the Pied Piper because there's this record of 130 children uh, who arrived in Transylvania in this town uh, from the town of Hamlin in Germany, um, and. The story says that the nice version of the story, probably the Jewish spin of the story, if it if there is a Jewish aspect to it, is that this Pied Piper was nothing more than one of these locators who um, took these children uh, freely with the permission of their parents um, to Transylvania. Because this is actually, according to what I was reading... It was actually a common practice because if you, you know, birth control, obviously, if you have too many children or you can't feed all the people in your family, um, there were, you know, there were ways of like giving them away, go someplace else. I thought it was very strange, this process, and I didn't look more into it. I was like, there's probably a lot of really bad things going on with that back then. Um, but these 130 children, uh, it's they, the way they tell the story is like they just left Hamlin and they showed up and there's a record of them showing up. In um, sorry, there's a record of 130 children showing up in Transylvania. Some record keeping. Mm -hmm. 130 children come from Hamlin. They go to they go to Transylvania. Um, there's also a record in Hamlin of 130 children leaving. But the story is is that it actually wasn't a locator. It was uh, a grifter or a huckster. This Pied Piper. Um, and pied means like multicolors, like uh -huh, the little okay. stripes. Yeah. Um, there are birds that are called like a pied, the type of bird that uh -huh. has a stripe. Yeah, um, okay. And so just like a buffoon, basically, um, like a jester, a court jester, which typically would have been a job um, occupied by Jews, um, showed up. Well, everybody in Germany used to do, I don't know, we're talking like 1500s here, right? Late 1400s, early 1500s? Uh, this was in 13... Something. Ah. Yeah. So I'm just thinking of the, the lands connect, like mercenary soldiers in Germany, how they like to wear flamboyant clothes. Oh, yeah. It like, was like a flex to show, yeah, I can... Well, this person, they say was not any... He was definitely some kind of, like, a strange person is how he's described. Uh -huh. um, and, like, a mercenary, those people, I think, would have had probably right, they would not be doing a respect. Yeah, not doing what he's doing. So this town had a rat problem. Um, and he came, and the, the, the not-so-nice story, there's like three versions of the story. Kind of the middle-of-the-road version is that he came, um, he, he said that I'll rid your town of this rat problem. Uh, the mayor of the town said, "All okay, we'll pay you a thousand guilders to do it, uh, which would have been a, a lot of money. And he took out his little flute, or lute, or what? no, not a lute, a flute. Um, and played music. It attracted all the rats to the center of the town, and then he marched them down to the river where they all drowned. Um, and apparently the... And Jews are a water-averse people, so this would make sense that this is a metaphor for Jews. Right. Leading people, yeah. Or baptism. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> I mean. um, and then, the according to the story, the mayor refused to pay. 
Uh, and this made the, the Pied Piper very angry. And so he took the children and left. He, well, sorry, I'm glossing over. He changed his clothing to that of like a green hunter's outfit, something that would have been attractive to children and started playing, came back a few days later and started playing music for them that would attract the children, not the rats. Children come out while their children are in, or while their parents are in church. And he takes 130 children under the age of four. And the not nice version of the story is that he leads them into a cavern where they're disappeared. Mm -hmm. They're dead. They're killed. Um, the sort of let's give this guy a break is that he takes them to Transylvania. But like, why would he take? The but children? there's like historical record that. 130 kids disappeared in Hamlin and then reappeared, or some, uh, or some at the same time, another right. 130 kids appeared in Siebenbergen. Right. So, but we don't know because children disappeared uh, quite often, and these chil these children never they never saw or heard from them again. And the record, the town records from 1384, it said it's been 100 years since our children left, um, but in the town of Hamlin, included because there was some historical. Uh, looking into this, and they believe that this something happened with a huckster or a grifter showed up to rid them of a rat problem, wasn't paid, got mad, and then some shenanigans were afoot. Like, because there's this whole, like, within the town of Hamlin, there's this whole kind of now it's obviously become like Disneyfied with like statues of the Pied Piper and whatever. Right. But there's a lot of historical accounting. Uh, going back to the 13 and 1400s, telling this story. Um, and the, that's when the origin of the story was the children disappeared to a cavern and they weren't found again. Um, so, because you'd think these people would be like, well, he just took them to Transylvania. That's what everybody in all these neighboring towns would be doing, right? Why is it the children, like, disappear? Why is it specific? Um, well, what about, uh, so on the, the Transylvanian end of it, is there any indication as to those 130 those kids that showed up there they what? can't they haven't been able they yeah. can't connect I mean there's no way to do like DNA verification I don't know how they would prove it they just said well even like is there any indication of what the people in Transylvania thought or did with those oh kids, no those kids just, mm -hmm. it's just well it was uh, put them to work uh, well it would have been pretty normal to be receiving kind of like shipments of people. Well, not just all kids, though. That's yeah, well, weird. sometimes, yes. Oh, really? That's what I was saying about the... Um, it was actually kind of common for children to be sent away to far away, like, for like rehoming or adoption. Right, when you don't have abortion or anything, and you got to get rid of your excess uh, And you kids. can't feed them. Just... And, yeah. But it's weird that it's that... It's that it's that many. Um, but... What was the other piece of this? There's another story, like, it kind of gets goofy, where they said they went into a cavern that was really a tunnel and then came up in Transylvania. Like, they traveled to Transylvania through a tunnel. And I'm just like, why is this cavern playing such a key role? It's like, that feels like a cope. Like, our children, we know that they were taken to a cave and murdered, but we'll just say that they came out in Transylvania. Maybe they went to Transylvania. Maybe they're yeah. safe. Maybe they're okay. Um, but... The reason why, why didn't anybody go looking for them? Um, my understanding is, like I was saying yesterday, uh, they made kind of an, a pact. They don't come back to where they're from. Right? I mean, right. When you're, that was a standard thing. Because they were getting, they were being freed, essentially, from the situation that they were in. 
serfdom, right? Right. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the story. Um, but then there was a, an article that I didn't download, but it's on the... You probably saw this link on uh, NIH.gov. Um, entitled, Was the Pied Piper of Hamlin Jewish? But I didn't download the, the yeah. academic paper. Oh, okay. Um, so, because <laughs> I mean, you have to pay, you have to pay like some $100 to be a member of whatever this was. It was, you know, it's a some sort of academic paper. But the fact that... So, yeah, if somebody wants to read, yeah, go go look that up and let us know that the TLDR yes. too, too long didn't read on that. Yeah, if somebody has access to this. But yeah, it's like literally, what was the Pied Piper of Hamlin Jewish? Um, and it does sound like a... Like, let's say that the story happened the worst possible case scenario. Who would come because the people of the town accused this guy of extortion? This is the other part of the story I forgot to tell. The reason why they didn't pay him the money is because they actually accused this guy of bringing the rats to the city and then saying, oh, you have a rat problem. I'll happily rid this, rid these rats of your city uh, for a thousand guilders. They accused him of extortion, and that's why he got so angry. And this is kind of a common... common I mean, does that... Like, I, I... Does that work though? Like, can you just go into a town and play music and the rats all like follow you? Is that a thing rats do? I don't know. I don't think. I mean, I've yeah. seen strange things with animals. So I mean, I, the only time I've ever seen rats is in Georgetown, which is, you know, metaf- a good fitting metaphor for the place. But yeah, I never like I never noticed them like collecting around music or something. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and it could have been he played music, but also had like some sort of food to attract them, you know, who knows, like a dragging a piece of cheese on a stick. Who know? I mean, I don't know really that, that piece of it, but, um, and I was also reading in the historical kind of deep dive into this, that rats kind of got added to the story in the like last 300 years or so. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, so it's like, okay, well, let's say the rats weren't part of the story. Why was this guy here? So this guy came to this place you was a stranger, was a weird guy, pissed everybody off, and then children disappear. Well, the me- the metaphor is pretty easy. If, you know, I don't have to be a, an expert in folklorology to see a, a, a easy right. link here from rat to type of person who acts like a rat. Mm-hmm. Who brought the rats. Like, and, and one, yeah, one who brings the others, promises to lead the others out, and then... Yes. Yeah. So we don't know. But that's the origin of the Pied Piper story, is this... Migration to Transylvania. It's interesting. So, you know, I like with this show, I like, I like to, I feel like we're, we're starting the discussion on things. So yeah, whenever I have an episode, I I end up reading, like when I did the Teutonic Knights episode with Warren a couple weeks ago, I ended up reading a bunch more about it later and oh man, I have so much more to say about this now. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so purposes to get the discussion going. Yes. See where it goes. But uh, just to, to wrap up, last thing, uh, how do you read, how do you find out more about this? And because this is such a, a corner of European history that you, there's just very little information on. I mean, the Dragon of Austin in general is hard to find information on. The main book on the Dragon of Austin in the Middle Ages is written by this French dude, uh, Charles uh, Higonot. Higo? H-I-G-O-U-T. Higonot. Higonot. Uh, who was this? He was a French officer in World War II who was captured and was hanging out in a German POW camp in Silesia. Nice. <clears throat> and, you know, they were gentlemen back then. So he got to go to the library at the university and, and check out books and do whatever he wanted to for his four years while he was nice. there. 
And uh, so he wrote this, he studied up on the Dragonock Austin, read all these German books and wrote a, a book on it in French, which was tr later translated into German. Um, and when's Antelope Hill going to translate? Yeah, well, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not translated into English. I mean, there are, there are tons of other stuff. There is tons of other stuff in German about it. Um, but that's just like the, probably the, the main general introduction to mm -hmm. the whole e uh, Eastern colonization during the Middle Ages is by that guy. Uh, and you know, you, you can like find other, other aspects of it, like the Teutonic Knights or the, uh, the, the, the Habsburgs and their wars with the Turks, but the Siebenberg and Saxons, there's one book you sent me called, uh, was it migrating Romanian Germans, Romanian migrating history or migration memories, or migrate, something. migrating memories or something. Yeah. I read a few, I read like. 80 pages of it or so. It's like a 500 page thing. And it's one of these, it's like a decent source because there's lots of just information in it, but it's also annoying because it's a modern academic writing. And so he does this thing where he, he'll, he'll talk about, he'll just qualify everything the dumbest way. And some of his sentences don't even mean anything. Oh, right. I, I wish I could, I, I should have written some of them down or pulled them up just because they're, they're like so circuitous and you just read through it and you're like, what? Um, but it's, it's 500 pages that should have been condensed to about 50 pages, yeah. but there is some good information there just about like how this started out and the basic story. Yeah. And I, I skimmed that book. Uh, Borzoi sent that to us cause I was asking for some sort of source material. Um, I was actually trying to find the book you sent the Hugo, Hugo yeah. Huguenot book in English, but he found that instead. Um, but most of the information that I have actually, um, you know, I've been there many times and the museums and the resources that they have in terms of like a library um, are, are very extensive. Um, you can spend, I mean, there, there are museums almost in every one of these larger cities um, and they're, you know, they have everything in them ranging from the Roman finds that would have been at that site to kind of the history of the guilds, but they have a whole, I think it's the Samuel von Bruckenthal Museum in, in Hermannstadt, uh, where they, you, you could spend five or six hours in there and read the equivalent of a book by just reading the exhibits. And each exhibit is like this, you know, seven paragraph wall text about whatever object that's there. And it'll explain, I mean, somebody, I think the point is, is that it exists in these museums. It exists in the research that's been done. I'm sure it exists in Transylvania Saxon literature and in Romanian literature. Although what I was reading uh, is that the way that the Romanians wrote about them uh, wasn't obviously very one-sided and not favorable toward them. Um, and so uh, I think it's just one of those things where there hasn't been someone to go do that research. You could, you could go, somebody could go kind of visit all of those museums and kind of pull that in the source material, the translations. Uh, but in order to write a book about it, I don't think as far as I know, it hasn't really been done in English. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this, you know, if you're, if you go to school in Romania, like you're taught this history, um, but it's always taught from like the Romanian perspective, like we didn't have any rights and these people over there, uh, whatever, that's kind of how it was, how it was done. So not a lot out there. You know, you can, 
the the Charles Higo book has a lot of uh, it's like a huge bibliography. Unfortunately, again, it's almost all French and Germans. It's most all German sources and some like Slavic languages. Wow. Um, so I wonder if that but, source material is still available. I, mean, I, I know a lot of it is. I mean, it's just there's there's plenty of it, but you know, there's also just Wikipedia, uh, mm-hmm. which you know is as politicized as as Wikipedia is. You can I re- you go I, to the sources can, that they cite right, and, and verify them. And the older stuff is a little bit less politicized, and you just you can read. I mean, I, I always go down rabbit holes when I if I mm-hmm. uh, if I'm like killing time or I I can't sleep or I whatever I'll just be reading Wikipedia. Oh, can go on forever. Yeah. And here's the thing that I find interesting too is if you actually go to foreign language Wikipedia mm-hmm. and read about the Transylvania Saxons on the German Wikipedia and then translate it to English. And then pull up Transylvania Saxons in the American Wikipedia side by side. It's not the same article. Yeah. It's totally different. And it's funny. The American, because it's like Americans and retards, like... Uh, Everything, uh, all the retardation goes into English. Well, it's like, well, it's probably started out okay. But then it's been edited and, you know, done. It's like been like... Yeah, English with. is the most politicized. Yes. So. And the, and the it's like not just with this subject, but like other subjects. Like I'll always go to the foreign, if it pertains to a foreign subject, or even if it pertains to us, like an American history subject written in a foreign language in their foreign kind of, uh, n- not the, how to explain this? It's not the translation of the American article on Wikipedia. It is like the German Wikipedia on, say, 1776. It's totally, it's like, it's usually like four times as long as ours. Yeah. It's more detailed. Um, Which is amazing to me. Like, you think English has such dominance. I mean, it does have such dominance. But you still, like, if you're looking for information, being able to read French or German, especially, is just so useful. Right. And most people... Um, or just Google Translate it. I mean, we'll stumble across like the German Wikipedia and they'll be like, well, I, this isn't what I want. And they won't even translate it to English. They'll go to... They'll get back into the English like language. What, but, I, what I encourage people to do is like just take... Uh, just find a list of like the hundred most commonly wor- used words in French. All, pre- all the prepositions, conjunctions, like basic words. Memorize that. And then try to read French Wikipedia because it's like higher word level words in French are all English words Mm -hmm. just with stupid pronunciation. But on the page, it looks the same. Yeah. And if you know all, if you know most of the the prepositions and and are they English words or they're, are they French words that English? Oh, you know, like, like, how do you say connection in French? I don't know, but I, I bet you it's connection. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) I bet it's spelled the same way too. Well, no, I'm asking, are they originally French words that they got adopted no, 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 in English, these, they're, or are they English words that got picked up? In- they're like common Latin root words oh, right. that were adopted into English, or, right. or just t- both French and English took them from directly from Latin. Right. So. Like like the word machina yeah. in, in Italian and Romanian is like yeah. machina. It's like... That's the name for a it's car. Everybody, everybody gives these Europeans credit for being so good at languages. They're not. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, you just... Put a little a little bit of effort into it goes a long way. Yeah, I always thought machine was kind of grub because it's just like machine. It's it's got wheels and it's loud and it's moving. It's a machine, and everybody just starts calling it a machine. But um, it's like every modern word, every word that refers to something that was invented in the last hundred years in foreign languages is almost always in English. Like yeah, it's just like you you just didn't even create a new word. It's just like you. But it's not yeah. Yeah, I, mm. But uh, one thing I want to say is, just as an example of something you'll... Fu- like, 
If you read the Transylvania Saxon article on English America Wikipedia, you'll see some level of detail. The one written in German is like four or five times as long. And that's where I found all those quotes from the 12th century uh, in that cathedral document talking about the Saxons and just talking about, um, you know, how distinguished they were, how honorable they were, how they were viewed uh, by different people in those time periods. And you wouldn't have gotten any of that if you read the American version. It's like, well, if, the, if somebody just deleted that out of the German version, I mean, you really have to go digging to find out that there were documents in a cathedral in the 12th century that wrote all about the Saxon people. Like you'd really have to go digging to find it all over again. That's the somebody's like brought it up to the surface, but one editor on Wikipedia can just wipe that away. Of course, you know I think how it works is like you can like one person could wipe it away, but it can be brought back somehow, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, um, when when Borzo and I did uh, no, it was it was uh, Warren and I did the the deep dive into that uh, the the Iron Prefect. Il, Il Profeto um, from World War II. The uh, Mussolini's like right hand man. Oh, let's see. Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh but Pharaoh, Profeto. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was a, a Wikipedia edit that was saying that this that this like right hand man of Mussolini who was very committed to uh, the cause in Italy um, was relieved of duty and the reason that he was relieved of duty was because he was bad mouthing Hitler. And I, before we did the deep dive, I said, Borza, can you confirm that this guy was actually bad-mouthing Hitler? Because I can't find... It's only on Wikipedia that it says it. Mm-hmm. It's nowhere else. And uh, what Borza found was that not only was it bullshit, he wasn't he wasn't uh, bad-mouthing Hitler. Um, it was this... The edit was done by a guy um, who... I forget. It's, it's a guy who's, like, very fixated on, like, German military history but is like anti-Hitler. And he was going, he, he was like a serial editor of Wikipedia articles to like edit in uh, narrative into the, the historical record about people disagreeing with uh, Hitler's military campaign strategies. So he was basically just a massive Manstein, Guderian, apologist yes. fanboy. Yes. And he was eventually, he was permanently removed from Wikipedia um, because of this repetitive kind of like bad editing. Um, and I think Borzoi tried to change the passage on uh, Il Faro, yeah, Iron Prefect, because it was not correct. There's no source material that says that he disagreed with Hitler. And then, then he it said like he badmouthed Hitler until the day of his death. It's like, this never happened. You just want to make it seem like everybody was on the wrong side of the, the military strategy. But anyway, just the point of like, Wikipedia is a great source, but you know, there's also a lot of junk out there. And then there's also like intentionally wrong things. Yeah, you just, like just got to develop your a sense, se- sense of yeah, your bullshit detector. Yeah. When you're reading stuff, because there's so much good stuff out there in the mainstream, mm-hmm. um, you just ha- and it. But as you're reading it, you have to be like, okay, well, where, where's where's the bullshit coming in? Right. And Iron Prefect, up to that point, had read like a very heroic figure, like he broke the mafia. He was like, he was the guy that essentially broke the mafia and, and did a lot of really great things under Mussolini. And then it's this one thing. He's like retired and he badmouths Hitler, and it's like. So this one thing, you know, somebody like us is like, well, this guy did a lot of great work, but then he became a faggot. 
Like, late in his life, for the rest of his life, he became a faggot. But that's not true. Because of some spurt who fucking said it. Like, sour. What, what really happened to the guy? Um, Do you he, know? I think he was... Uh, I forget the exact reason um, why he was retired. I, I think it was just because... Well, he was old at that point. Um, the thing about Iron Prefect is he's a lot older than Mussolini. And he was just, a, like, a really trusted uh, police captain guy who who was brought in to break the mafia. And when it was all said and done, I mean, they just didn't need this kind of old... He was... You'll like this. He was originally a conservative uh, <laughs> who, who was, like, dragged kicking and screaming toward fascism and became kind of an 11th hour fascist. But from that moment on, he was loyal to Mussolini. And I think there was concern that maybe he would slip back into that or that he was just uh-huh. almost older. Kind of they're moving forward. It's like you've done your job. You're also really fucking old. Like you're retired now. We're moving on. Um, and then that guy added the part about, well, because he, he didn't like Hitler. He was critical of Mussolini's alliance with Hitler. He didn't think that he should be allied with Hitler. That was the yeah. problem. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, what, what, what our job is. We try to, uh, and this show and, and, uh, fascination and, and everything else we try to find all the information and then filter it a little bit so you don't have to go out and start from the very beginning like right where is where is the bullshit where's the good information mm-hmm. well thanks for coming on jazz hands it's been sure. a great show and uh talk hope to uh do this again yeah thank you Thank you.